You're listening to episode number 108 of the Self-Care Sunday podcast, and today's episode is an interview with Dr. Kara Natterson. Dr. Kara Natterson is a pediatrician, consultant, speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and entrepreneur. She's the doctor behind the Care and Keeping of You series with more than 6 million copies in print, a book series that I'm positive every young girl going through puberty has read. Kara was recently on the Goop podcast talking about her newest book, Decoding Boys. And for those of you who don't know, I love the Goop podcast. It is one of my favorite podcasts to listen to for my own self-care. I feel like the conversations they have there are so deep and inquisitive and it feels very cool to have a guest who's on Goop also on Self-Care Sunday. The reason that I am so privileged to have Kara on the show today is because we've actually been working together for the past couple of months on her company, Umla, which we'll talk about shortly. Kara graduated from Harvard, John Hopkins Medical School, and UCSF before becoming a leading voice in puberty and adolescent health and partnering with American Girl on the Care and Keeping of You series. It wasn't until Kara and her business partner, Julie, both had daughters in their tween years that they realized a gap in the market for cute, comfortable, and well-fitted training bras. So the two came together to create Umla, and more specifically, the Umbra, which is a first-of-its-kind training bra with a patented design to fit and adapt to your body as it goes through those transformational changes. After launching the Umbra, they quickly found that women of all ages loved how soft the bras are, how breathable, how non-constricting they are, and this is me speaking from personal experience as well. I've been living in my Umbras for the past couple of months ever since I received them. And so now they say that the Umbra might be your first bra, but it will be your favorite bra. I'm excited to dive into Kara's story with you today. She gives so many nuggets of wisdom. So enjoy today's episode. P.S. Today's self-care Sunday recommendation is obviously the Umbra. I'm going to leave a link down below in the show notes. You can go check them out and use the code Self-Care Sunday for 10% off at the checkout. If you're looking for a new, super soft, cozy, comfy bralette, they've been described as sweatpants for your boobs. They fit any chest size between 24 inches and 38 inches. So whether you are a mom of a soon-to-be teenage daughter or a grown woman like myself who just wants a comfier bralette to wear around the home and every single day, they have a ton of cute patterns and designs. Every single Umbra is reversible, so you kind of get two-in-one, and the products are designed in Los Angeles and ethically made. So really, it's a win-win-win. Support a female-founded company, get a high-quality bra, and save 10% with the code SELFCAREESUNDAY at the checkout. All right, let's get into today's episode. Okay, Kara, so I know you in the context of Umla. We've been working together for, I guess, maybe almost two months now, but I'm so curious to learn your backstory and learn more about how you got to where you are pre-Umla and the story leading up to that. So why don't we start there? Sounds great. So I grew up in Los Angeles, and the only goal I had in life, really, was to not live in Los Angeles. <laughs> and I am currently podcasting with you from Los Angeles. So <laughs> you can see how that worked out for me. But after college, I ended up 
deciding to go to medical school. And a lot of people will ask me why, and I don't really know why. It's so funny. I was not born to be a doctor in the very traditional way that so many of my med school classmates were. I loved the human body. I loved understanding the physiology and the anatomy, but I sort of knew from the very beginning I wasn't going to have a very traditional path. So in medical school, you do two years in the classroom and then two years on the wards and you take care of patients. I fell madly in love with the pediatric patients. That was kind of a slam dunk to me. I knew I was going to be a pediatrician. And I then went from medical school to pediatrics training. And for my training, I ended up moving back to LA. So I did all my education outside of LA and I ended up moving back and working in this big group practice with seven other wonderful pediatricians. It was like having a whole bunch of brothers and sisters who were older and could guide me in the world of pediatrics. And I loved it. I learned so much. And I was there for almost eight years. But in those eight years, a couple of things happened. So one thing is that I met my now husband and had two kids pretty quickly. And the second was that one of those eight partners became a writer. And he became not just a writer, but he actually became a pretty famous writer pretty quickly. And I was so young, Kaylee, and I decided if he could do it, I could do it. It was really how that happened. And so (laughs) so ridiculous. And so one day while I was in practice and I was pregnant, I decided to write a book about all the things that people called me about all the time and just put all the answers in a book. And I called it Your Newborn Head to Toe. And I published it and I went on a bunch of TV shows and promoted it, but I never told any of my patients about it because... I didn't want to be that doctor who sells their book. You know, I thought that was kind of slimy. So then I did it again. I had my second baby, wrote my second book, and I just kind of figured I would just be a writer on the side. I don't know what I was thinking. And then there was a day, and I remember it very, very clearly, when one mom brought her child into the office and her child had a fever of about 104, which in pediatrics is not alarming. And she was sobbing. She was sobbing. And she said to me, you're so lucky because you have kids at home and if they have a fever of 104, you don't freak out because you know what you need to know. At which point I started sobbing (laughs) because I didn't ever see my kids. I didn't have any time with them. I was working all the time. It was mostly my choice. I didn't know how to find balance, but that was the moment I knew I needed to leave. And I did. I left my practice and I decided I'd written a couple of books. I'm going to reinvent myself as a writer. And I did. I wrote a book called Dangerous or Safe about all the chemicals that are in products that parents freaked out about. And I looked at all the science. And when that book came out, I put myself on a little mini book tour and I would drive around LA and I would go to preschools in the evening and I would do these parent events in the evening. And it was that little do-it-yourself book tour that led to going to Mattel, the toy company, which is also local to LA, and giving a talk there, which led to an introduction to the company American Girl. And American Girl is based in Middleton, Wisconsin, but they were owned by Mattel. And I had this conversation with someone from Mattel where they asked me, you know, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, oh, there's this book called The Caring Keeping of You. And it's written by American Girl, and it's a total cult classic. And I would update it, and then I would do a whole series. And this is what the whole series would look like. And literally within three weeks, I was on a plane 
meeting with the people from American Girl. And I had this job that I frankly felt very unprepared for because I was not a trained writer, (laughs) but it was a good example of putting out into the universe what you hope for. And it just paid off in spades. So that was 2011. It was 10 years ago. And since then, I've published five books with American Girl, all within the same puberty health series. And I have a wonderful team over there that I love and adore. And I slowly moved into the space of advocating for kids to get information about puberty. And at first it was just through the books and then I would teach in classrooms and then I started to create a little bit more content. And then my daughter Talia got boobs and there was no (laughs) bra for her. And that was the beginning of Umla and creating product and you can't create product for kids going through puberty without also creating some content to go along with it. And here we are in 2021, and I feel very lucky because I have all these books and I have this company, and they're all aimed in the same direction, which is to make puberty comfortable. You're such a great storyteller. I loved listening to that (laughs) and got goosebumps when you were talking about kind of manifesting this reality for yourself of this dream of what you could ultimately want and that coming to fruition. And I know I've struggled with this kind of throughout my young adult life. And now that I'm getting a little bit older and wiser, I would like to think, (laughs) I've kind of lent into making decisions in different ways. So I think when I was younger, I would really overthink decisions and didn't really know how to commit to something and like carve out a path for myself. Because when you're young, you don't really know what path you necessarily want to go down. And you being a doctor, my thought of a doctor is that you would make very logical, reasoned decisions for your life's path. But it sounds like you also really follow your gut. How do you reconcile making those decisions for yourself when you think back over that path that you've come down? You are a very good listener. <laughs> you went right to the heart of who I am. So I am, I'm very risk averse and I'm very rational, but the most important and impactful decisions I've ever made in my life have been, frankly, some of the most impulsive decisions I've ever made. Mm. So the three biggest decisions I ever made, I met my husband and we were engaged in three weeks. That's not very slow and rational and risk averse. So there was that one. There was the decision to leave my practice, which really was in a moment. And then there was the decision to, and this is sort of a more vague decision, but the decision to not be afraid to throw spaghetti against the wall and see what would stick. Because I tell you this story and it sounds so linear and it sounds like everything just sort of happened. But on that 10-year journey, There were so many times where I tried something and it totally failed. I wrote a novel. It was horrible. (laughs) I created this animated show about puberty that was Mm. fabulous, but it didn't have legs and it Mm. wasn't the right thing at the right time. There have been so many failures along the way. And I don't know what it is about getting older and sort of learning to give over to putting yourself out there. But if you can get past feeling vulnerable, it's incredibly freeing to say, hey, I have these skills and I have these desires and I'm just going to try this thing. 
And I know what I know, but I also know what I don't know. So I know who I need to surround myself with in order to learn what I don't know or to fill the holes because I can't do everything. And I think that took getting older. I, I also think as women, you know, my generation of women was raised to believe that you can be superwoman and you can do everything. And I think your generation of women is the beneficiary of not thinking you can do absolutely everything because it becomes a burden to think you can do everything. It's just that your generation believes you should have the opportunity to do everything. And I think that's the right mm. approach, right? So my friends were raised to think you have to be happy at home, be happy at work, be happy doing this, be happy doing that, be the multitasker, that that is success. And your generation, I think, is much better at sort of looking at that puzzle going, hmm, no, I want to be happy at work and that's where I want to thrive. Or, hey, I'd love to be happy in a relationship and that's where I'm going to put my energy. Or I want to split myself between work and relationship. This other thing, whatever it is, my hobby, my this, my that, might give a little bit and that's okay. That's so much healthier than the way my generation operated. So- I think that combined with allowing yourself a little vulnerability is kind of a winning combination. Mm, I think it's really fascinating that you talk about the younger generation as having this really healthy outlook on things because I think when we self-reflect, we often feel like we have no idea. <laughs> and we also look to the past generations before us, whether it's because the media is telling us this or because we tell ourselves this, that, I don't know, things were maybe in a way not as much pressure as there is now with social media and things and influencer culture and all of this. And for me, I mean, it's hard to know what is better or what is worse because I kind of grew up in the stage where as I was growing up, Facebook became a thing, Instagram became a thing, TikTok is now a thing, and I grew up with these platforms versus seeing from the outside in the impact of those platforms on younger people. So you have had the opportunity to see how these platforms have impacted young girls through puberty. What are your thoughts on that? You know, I think that my generation's first reaction to social media in general was a defensive and negative one, right? It, it's sort of like the invention of any new technology. The old fogies in the room go, oh, the culture's <laughs> going to be ruined because we have television now. <laughs> and so I think there was a defensiveness when social media first became a real platform at the beginning with MySpace and you know the old, old guard platforms. Now I think we view it Number one, with a healthier balance, I think we see the pros and the cons more clearly. And number two, with a lot of envy. I think there are a lot of people who are, you know, when a 50-year-old jumps on Facebook, Facebook becomes completely uninteresting to a 20-year-old, <laughs> right? We saw that play out over the last few years. I think Instagram is doing the exact same thing where the older folks are trying to take over the platform. And at a certain point, the younger generation is just going to move on to the next platform. And so we're constantly playing catch up because we can see 
what the benefits of connectedness are. We can see what the benefits of group messaging are. We can see that when we believe in something, you know, if you want to message how to take better care of the earth or how to take better care of yourself, it's incredible to be able to message that to a huge platform. But once that platform becomes saturated with people who are older and a little bit stodgier, that platform just becomes kind of old and stodgy. And so I cannot imagine, I look at my kids all the time. My daughter's turning 18 in two weeks. My son is 16. I look at them all the time and think, I could not imagine growing up with these platforms. I could not imagine seeing images of perfection all the time, or honestly, images of perfect imperfection, where Mm -hmm. someone takes something bad and makes it into the perfect comedic little bite. (laughs) And you go, Mm -hmm. ah, I never would have handled it that way. And I always saw it through the lens of envy and thought, this would make me feel bad if I was growing up with this. But that is not how my kids see it. My kids see it through the lens of being educated, like, wow, Mm. this is how this person handles their body image issues. This is how this person handles their evolving sense of style. This is how this person handles their gender identity. It's really, really interesting to give yourself permission to not see the platform as self-defeating, but instead to see it as sort of unifying. And by the way, I think it can be both too. Like I think sometimes it can be negative and sometimes it can be positive. But for the most part, I feel like having grown up with it, my kids see the benefits more than they see the downsides. And you happen to be in a sort of an age cohort where you're stuck right in between. Mm-hmm. You you were there at the front end of the development of all of this. You're very much a native. You live in that world. And yet you're also close enough in age to people who didn't grow up in that world that you must be pulled in two different directions in a way that the young, the Gen Alphas and the young Gen Zers, they, they're not pulled. This is mm-hmm. just... This is just the earth they grew up on. their life. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, this is not my first time saying this. Social media has affected my health in many ways, my self-perception, self-consciousness, self-awareness in both good and bad ways. And I have a love-hate relationship with it, but also it's my job. And I think that's the love part is like – It connects me with people like you. It brings new opportunities to young people. I think – The creator economy is especially interesting to me because there's 16, 18-year-olds who are now becoming small business owners because of tools that they have that they are digitally native to. So obviously, so much good comes from it, but I'm no stranger to feeling, you know, (laughs) insecure because of it as well. One of the things you do so well, one of the reasons that we were so drawn to you and we're so happy to be connected with you is that you're really inspiring to us about sort of sharing your authenticity. You know, you create this content that is so relatable. There are posts that you have created for Umla that are so laugh out loud funny <laughs> about, you know, the feelings that you had when you had to buy your first bra. And then you layer over a voiceover that is just It's so creative, but it's also just laugh out loud funny. And everyone who listens or watches goes, oh my God, I had that exact experience and I would never have (laughs) married those two, those images and words. And yet it's perfect. And so I wish I could wave a wand and take away the self-esteem hits from social media. But on the other hand, the way that your brain has sort of worked through it and what you 
create on the other end, it's frankly, it's medicinal for a lot of people because they can laugh. And I think that that's why my kids love the medium because they can laugh and they can relate. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that. And I think a big reason why I was so drawn to working with you guys as well is the story behind Umla and my own experiences, you know, as a (laughs) now young adult, I guess I'm, am I a young adult still? I don't know. Adult. You are a young, (laughs) young, young adult. Cause I'm a young adult, Kaylee. Okay. okay. I'm like, I don't know what the line is, but you know, experiences as a preteen, a teenager and really loving everything you guys have done with the brand. So let's talk about Umla. How did it start? The meaning behind the name, everything. Well, I will start at the beginning and tell you that I wish my co-founder Julie was sitting next to me right now because she adds a lot of color to this story when we tell it, but I'll try to do my best as a (laughs) one-woman band telling the story. But So Umla began when my daughter Talia and Julie's daughter Rhea were in the fourth grade. And Talia was sort of an early bloomer, although I speak and teach a lot about how puberty is happening so much earlier for girls now that fourth grade is no longer considered early for girls' bodies to begin changing. But at the time, Rhea and Talia are now entering their senior year of high school, so 12th grade. It's been a while. But at the time, Talia had some development, and Julie calls me up. I don't know her. And she says, hey, I know you write all these puberty books. And I'm just wondering, where do you buy Talia's bras? (laughs) And I said, oh, Julie, everything on the market is hideously horrible. It's ugly. The material's disgusting. There are these huge pads in it, or there are no pads in it, and it doesn't work. And so I don't buy Talia bras. And Julie, in perfect Julie fashion, says to me, remember, we don't know each other. She says to me, well, first of all, your daughter needs a bra. And second (laughs) of all, she says, my mom is a sewer and she sewed every piece of clothing I wore before the age of 10, including my underwear. And she has sewed a bra because we couldn't find anything on the market that worked and was comfortable and cute. So she sewed a bra and you know, can you just take a look at it and tell me if it's healthy? Which was a really interesting prompt. I'd never been asked if a garment was healthy before. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, well, you know, why don't you bring it over? So she brings the bra and Rhea and Rhea and Talia go off to Talia's room and they hang out for an hour and have a play date. And at the end of the hour, they emerge and they're best friends. And they're best friends because there are two girls and there is one bra. And neither one of them wanted to let it go. (laughs) And Julie and I kind of looked at each other and thought, "Hmm, maybe we're on to something. Now, Julie has a full-time career as a publicist in the film industry. She has a very, very big job. I was at the time writing full-time and I also had a side consulting practice where I'd help people with all sorts of medical issues, medical mystery. We didn't have any time to go create a bra. (laughs) So over the next several years... We kept kind of going back to this idea. We still couldn't find anything. We would go and hire a sewer and have a sewer sew two or three or four prototypes just so the girls could wear something. Then all of their friends would steal the prototypes. And we kept iterating it and it kept getting better and better and better. And finally, by the time the girls were about 15 or 16 years old, we had a pattern. We had several prototypes. We had focus grouped them. We had made prints. We had created prints with an artist and printed up the material. We had come up with this concept of 
creating a reversible garment because we felt that girls deserve to be able to cover up when they want to cover up. So one side is nude, but they deserve to be able to show their stuff when they want to show their stuff. So the other side is really cute print and legit cute, like not ugly cute, like most <laughs> of the things cute. that are sold to teenagers. <laughs> and so we had sort of everything in the pipeline. We put in a patent application because we designed a garment that worked to hug you enough to pull in nipples, whether they were at the breast bud stage or whether breasts were fully mature, we could control the sort of visuals around nipples without any pads, without any binding like a sports bra. So to Julie's first question, is this healthy? I have no studies that prove it's healthy, but I'm just telling you right now, I've, I wear the Umbra every day and I've never felt relief when I take it off. You don't mm -hmm. exhale when you take it off, which to mm -hmm. me is a sign of health. You've got no resistance on your chest. You've got nothing pulling, which means that when you're growing and you're growing boobs, the breast tissue is not growing against resistance, right? It's just gentle compression. So one day we'll do the studies and I'll be able to officially tell you it's healthy. I can't quite do that <laughs> yet, but we had everything in place. And then COVID came and we sort of looked at each other and we had two simultaneous thoughts. One was, well, the world is really in big trouble and we have material. It's really good material and it's comfortable against your skin. So at the very least, let's just make some masks and protect some people. And the second thought was life is really short and we should launch this company. And so we did both. In May of 2020, we launched Umla with just masks and they are filtered masks. So super soft and comfortable and good for you. My kids called them bras for your face and that is a hundred percent true. But really what we were doing was we were getting our production lines up. We were getting our distribution lines up. We were getting our website launched. We were establishing ourselves as a public benefit corporation. One of the things that we do to be a public benefit corporation, which is sort of the precursor to being a B Corp, a green B Corp, is that we started a one-for-one -one program. And for every mask that was purchased, we donated one. We've donated at this point, I think it's about seven or 8,000 masks all up and down California, which has been amazing. Amazing. And then in October, we launched the Umbra. And I will say that the name, just to answer the question asked, it's an acronym. It stands for Order of Magnitude Los Angeles. Order of Magnitude is a reference to the fact that when you go through puberty, you're going to grow to the size and shape that you're going to grow. It's genetically programmed. There are some things you can do to impact it, but by and large, you are who you are and that's genetically programmed. So the idea is you are going to grow an order of magnitude. That order of magnitude is unique to you and it's right for you. And that's what that phrase is all about. Los Angeles is our hometown, obviously, and it's where we make all of our fabrics. It's where we sew all of our garments. We make sure that everyone we work with prioritizes the health of the people who are working with them, which is very important to us. So it's a very local company. I love it. And there's so many little things about the brand that you guys have built that as I was learning them and as I continue to learn them, I just feel so much more connected. And I think one of those things was when we first met and we're talking about the way you guys do product photos. And this was so interesting to me because 
I, you know, thinking back to my training bra buying experience, I think I probably went to the mall with my mom and we had Lacenza Girl here in Canada, but there was never like an online presence when I was purchasing training bras. And now, of course, everything is online. But what was really fascinating to me is how you don't really show the front of a lot of models that you guys feature in the product photography. Can you talk about that? Yeah, it's been really interesting. And actually, our conversations with you have been so helpful around this because initially we made an internal promise to ourselves to never show young underage girls from the front wearing a bra because we felt that that objectified them. It was sort of a male gaze situation. And we really believe that young people, male, female, doesn't matter, young people should be empowered to feel good about their changing body. It's hard enough when you have no idea what that body's going to do, when it's going to do it, or where it's going to land. Okay. So it's a pretty big ask to say to a 10-year-old, have faith. It's all going to work <laughs> out, right? And so we felt that we did not want to play a role in objectifying kids in any way. And so we always shot them from behind. Now, what's interesting, a couple of things are interesting. The first is that it's very hard to show how a bra works if you don't have photography showing it from the front. But I would argue that if anyone who's listening goes on to Google and does an image search for training bras, some of the images that will come up very, very quickly are instantly icky. You mm -hmm. instantly look at the pictures and say, that's just not right. It's a young child and it just feels wrong. So to me, it was never worth it to show the functionality of the product in that specific way because it felt too disrespectful of the child. And these are children, right? The other thing though, is that, and this came from a conversation with you, Kaylee, is that while we don't want to objectify, we also don't want to dictate the terms of what makes someone feel good about themselves. And so what we have always said is we are only going to photograph you from the back or from the side in such a way that is not objectifying. But however you want to photograph yourself in an umbra, that should be tied to your self-esteem and in your decision tree. Now, I'm a pediatrician. I know a lot about the way kids make decisions, the way their brains work, and the fact that a decision that they might make about taking a picture of themselves in a certain way at age 12 or 14 or 16 might be a very different decision by the time they're 18 or 20 mm -hmm. or 22. But that being said, who am I to tell someone what is or isn't okay for them? So I always tell kids, I wouldn't post if you have a question about sort of what you're putting out into the world, just don't post it. But if you want to take a picture in a bra that happens to be made by two moms, you know, as Julie likes to say, you can make it look and feel as sexy as you want, but there is nothing sexy about an umbra at its core, <laughs> right? It In and of itself, it's sweatpants for your boobs. Mm -hmm. It is not lingerie. And by the way, I think that's why people love it. It's mm -hmm. sweatpants for your boobs. But what that means to us is as girls are getting to 16 and 17, and they are not quite yet legal consenting adults on that front, right? They still have very strong opinions about how they see themselves and how the world sees them. And we don't want to blunt those feelings. And so we have some models who have worked with us who they love 
how they look and feel in an umbra and they say, can we take a picture of ourselves from the front? And our answer is, yeah, absolutely. You can do it. And if you're living with a parent and that parent is your legal guardian until you're 18, you need to check with your parent, but we're never going to do it. But we Mm -hmm. don't want to tell you what is or isn't beautiful or empowering. And that messaging is complicated, Mm -hmm. right? It's really, really complicated. But I think if we had designed a different garment, we would probably be having a different discussion. It is really a very comfy, very modest garment. And I think that's why the older teenagers are so excited to share it with the world. Yeah. I mean, I've been wearing mine pretty much every day since I got my package. I told you. (laughs) I love them. They're just so comfortable and they're cute. And, you know, you can flip it to the nude side and I love beige and neutral. So it's like my dream bra. (laughs) And you know what's crazy? We made all these different nude colors because there's nothing for young girls, tweens in particular, that's made to match their skin tone, right? They Mm -hmm. get this either white garment or like neon color garment, (laughs) or they get this one color of nude that has never matched any skin tone I've ever seen, right? (laughs) It's that really muddy, yucky Mm -hmm. skin color. And so we thought, oh, we're going to make all these different nude tones and then people are going to be able to match their skin tone. And you know what's incredible is that this generation of young people they see color really differently. It's so beautiful. So I have kids who are very, very fair, who choose the darkest brown nude because they love the color and they love Mm -hmm. the way it looks against their skin. And likewise, I have kids who have super dark skin and they choose the lightest color. And it's just been fascinating to see that it again, sort of, I think this is sort of speaks to who they are as a group of people. But when I was growing up, I think people would literally be holding it up against their skin to see what's the closest match I can get. And for this group, they just see it all differently. It's so healthy. It's mm-hmm. so great. Well, yeah, there's a lot I could say on that, but I have other questions too. <laughs> so I think something that has been a recurring in marketing for bra companies is that they are very girly and they target girls. And what we've seen, you know, really beautiful things happening in the past few years is that gender has become more fluid. And I think people are a lot more accepting of different gender identities and expression. And yet a lot of marketing for companies hasn't caught up to that. And I remember having a conversation where we were chatting about some of the values of Umla and you guys saying, you know, anybody who needs to wear a bra can wear this. Where did that decision come from internally? And I guess how has the conversation around puberty and gender identity changed in the past few years? Yeah, that has been a commitment of ours from day one. And a lot of it has to do with just a very personal experience that Julie and I have had where we have watched from a front row seat the trajectory of a couple of kids that we're very close with as they transition. And we've started to learn all of the subtle things that they could have used that would have buoyed them, that would have created a sort of a silent support network that the world was telling them, hey, this is all going to be okay. And you're doing all this hard work and all these things are in place to support you. And one of the things 
that we thought we could do was create a bra that was for anyone who wanted to or needed to wear a bra. And so very intentionally, our logo is as non-gendered as possible. Not that logos are gendered, but you know, we have this. <laughs> it's not bright pink. I, there's no right. glitter. <laughs> there's no, there are no unicorns, there are no flowers, there are yeah. no hearts. Not that those are girl and a boy, but you know, it's like we, we very intentionally chose a logo that anyone could relate to. We have gone towards a color spectrum that is really intended to be non-gendered, although it's very funny because a lot of our colors are nudes in a lot of our posts. And even that now feels gendered. And <laughs> I was just talking to my team yesterday saying, let's get a little more color because <laughs> I do feel like for whatever reason, nudes skew one direction mm-hmm. and they don't need to and they shouldn't, but they do. So let's just be more inclusive. And and everyone's on board with that. And while we did launch with a bra, which is you know traditionally a girl product, we will also as we expand our product line, be including puberty-focused products that are more traditionally male products. And so our goal from day one has been to be about puberty and not about gender. Mm. I will say that for my part, when I first went to work for American Girl, I was being selected to update a book that was already a cult classic. It already had 3 million copies in print. Every parent I knew bought it for their kids, read it with their kids. It was a huge deal, right? And I walk into this company and the first thing I said was, you need to do a boy book. And Mm. they looked at me like I was completely insane. I mean, I walked into a company with a humongous sign, American Girl. Girl. (laughs) (laughs) They had never made a boy product. They had no intention of making a boy product. That was not their core consumer. And yet my editor... Is a single mom of a son who's about three months older than my daughter. And she looked at me in day one and she said, we'll make it happen. <laughs> and the way that we finally sold the idea, and I will tell you our first boy book came out in 2017, I think, and sells as many copies as the girl books, which is a phenomenal number of books <laughs> every year. It's just bananas how many of these sell. But the winning argument that we made was that In a 100-page book, only 20 of the pages had anything to do with being anatomically female. Hmm. 80 of the pages were about the experience of transformation, your body transforming, eating well, exercise, washing your face. I mean, tell me what's gendered about any of that. (laughs) Nothing. And so that was how we broke that mold there, is we won the argument that puberty itself is not gendered. Mm. And that has been one of the mantras of Umla from day one, which is we are not a girl company. We are a puberty company, puberty and beyond company. And it has nothing to do with whether you have two X chromosomes or an X and a Y. Interesting. I love it. So what's next for Umla? I don't know what you're allowed to share with me, but Well, I'll tell you that in January, as you know, we launched the Puberty Portal, which is the first that I can find searchable content about puberty written by and for tweens and teens. We have a group of incredible teenagers who have created so much content and I read everything. And my friend Vanessa Bennett was really instrumental in helping create this content as well. And we 
have posted now dozens and dozens of articles about everything that happens during puberty. And we have these meters that rate an article so that based upon where you are in your development, you can tell if the article is targeted towards you. And the meters, they're kind of funny. They range from, you know, how developed you are to your sex ed knowledge to (laughs) the best one is if this article was a movie, it would be rated. And (laughs) that way, you know, parents and kids alike can kind of gauge it, but there's nothing online available for kids. It's all for parents and for lawyers. And there's a lot on social, but it's hard to search. So this Mm -hmm. is the first sort of online portal. And as a companion to that, next week, I will launch the Puberty Podcast. And that is with Vanessa, my co-creator on the Puberty Portal. Vanessa's hilarious. She has four kids. She has been teaching in the puberty world for many, many years. And we have created a podcast that has tons of content directed at the adults who are helping raise these kids. So parents and coaches and teachers and all the people in these kids' lives. And we have, you know, episodes on everything you can imagine that's happening (laughs) in puberty. So that's on the content side, what's coming. And on the product side, I can't say much yet, but here are the places that we do have room for growth, so to speak. We desperately want to increase our size range. And so we're working on that. So that's one exciting forefront. And another is, as I said, we recognize that not everyone who's going through puberty needs or wants a bra. So you will see more product there. I'm so excited. And by the time this episode is out, I think your podcast will be live. So I will be linking in the show notes below for everybody who wants to check it out. To wrap, so I mean, you are a wealth of knowledge on many things. Do you have any advice for young girls slash women slash I feel like up until, you know, we're always going through transitions in life. (laughs) I don't know if I will ever feel completely, I don't know, myself and successful. And there's just always so many transitional phases that we go through as women. So do you have any advice for the women who are listening? I do. And it's so funny that you teed it up that way because the best advice I can give is that every pivot is an incredible opportunity to change the world and to have joy. And I think that this feeling of future uncertainty or restlessness that so many of us have should be viewed as a gift. You know, we should educate ourselves and then we should set our intentions and our goals as humans the same way we would do it if we were building a business, which is what do I believe in? What do I want to do? What do I want to change? How can I make that difference? I hope for you, Kaylee, that you get to do 17 different things with that incredible brain you have. (laughs) And each one should be fun and a steep learning curve. And at the end of the ride, at the end of the trajectory, you will figure out how they all come together. You know, I've been lots of things in my life and only now can I say it's logical and they all kind of tie together into this one very cohesive business. But I don't think we're meant to do everything cohesively all the time. I think life gets boring if we do that. So just give yourself permission to enjoy the pivots. 
I love that. Thank you so much. This was such a wonderful conversation. You are just incredible to chat with. And I'm so excited to see everything that's coming up next. I will be linking things in the show notes. And that's the end of this episode. Thank you. (laughs)